if you got your Bibles, you'll want to turn to, for most of us, what is a very familiar text, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 32, sorry, verses 23 to 32, and it's the uh, communion passage that we often use, and uh, so this morning we're going to read that together. But before we get to the text, I got to tell you my morning groaner. Are you ready? So there was a monastery that was going bankrupt. And so the abbot decided that he would call a meeting of all the brothers, of all the monks, to come up with a plan. And so what they decided to do, their plan was that they would open an old English fish and chips stand. So one day, a man shows up and says to the person in charge, can I just get an order of fries? And the monk says, well, I'm just the fish fryer. You need to see the chip monk. (laughs) What is wrong with you people? You know, (laughs) I was laying in bed. It's not going to get, just fine. I was laying in bed the other night, and I was reading these jokes. And um, I read one, and, and it just, I'm just like, just knocks me down funny. And I'm just laughing, you know, and the whole bed's shaking, right? And then I read, and so I said to Ruth, hey, can I read you this? Because she's not here this morning. She's on a sister's weekend with her other five, with her five sisters. Uh, but the six brothers are not there. But anyway, she's on a sister's weekend. So she, so she kind of chuckled graciously. And I said, can I read you one more? And she said, sure. And I may read you, I may tell you the other one later in the sermon. And I told her, I'm just laughing to kill myself. And, and she says, you're going to stop soon, right? <laughs> what are you laughing at? <laughs> anyway, let's stand. <laughs> let's read this text together. I'm reading blue and you're reading black. And we, and most of us, if you're new, uh, to Christianity or new to the Bible, uh, you will learn this as well. Uh, but this is from, as I said, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And this is Paul speaking, and he says, For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine themselves, and then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord... We are disciplined so that we may be condemned along with the world. Beautiful. Let's pray together. Father, again, we are so deeply grateful that we love you. 
but more particularly that you love us and have shown this generously, extravagantly, in, through, and as Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit that takes everything that you have accomplished in Christ and makes it applicable to each of our lives. And so today we ask that you would, by the Holy Spirit, give us a voice to speak, ears to hear, minds to comprehend, hearts to understand, and Lord, that we would live out your truth in tangible, meaningful ways in our homes, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our city. And we give you praise and thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Why don't you be seated? Now, this time of year, we are called upon to, as a nation, to remember, lest we forget. And we are called upon to remember the the armistice of 11 November 1918, which was signed between the Allies and Germany at the end, or during, actually, not quite the end yet, of the First World War. It was put into effect on, at 11 a.m. Paris time on 1918, in 1918, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. But at the same time, each month, you and I, we are called to remember something similar yet very different, to remember lest we forget the suffering, the death, the burial of Jesus Christ. We are called upon to do that, and when we do that and we match these two together, there are, they are very different scenarios, but they have some commonalities. And some of those commonalities are war and sacrifice and death and freedom and certainly freedom from tyranny, both physical and spiritual. And both call us to do three things. To look back, to look forward, and to look inward. And so that's what we're going to do this morning as we look at our text. We're going to do exactly those three things. We're going to look backward. We're going to look forward, and then we're going to look internally, inward. Now, when we look backward, we understand that communion goes all the way back to the beginning of the Old Testament, to the Exodus. And what was put in place to remember the Exodus of the people of Israel out of Egypt was the Passover. And every time the Jewish people celebrated Passover, it was to commemorate their exodus, their freedom of coming out of Egypt as a nation of slaves to become a nation of free people. It was on the night that Jesus is celebrating Passover with his disciples on the Thursday prior to the crucifixion on the Friday that Jesus actually institutes what we now know as the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table or what we call in our tradition communion. And this is what the text said that we just read. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, the other thing we need to know and keep in mind that the Passover itself and the Passover lamb itself finds its absolute fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting in the communion text, the text that we read a moment ago, is that we are, Jesus tells us twice to do this. To do this. Now, 
this is what Jesus told us to do. And we have done this as the Christian church, as Christians, for more than 2,000 years. And as Eugene Peterson has pointed out, we have come up with different reasons why to do it. We have come up with different theological understanding of what Jesus is doing as he is instituting the Lord's Supper. And whether we sit, stand, or kneel doesn't really matter. We do so to receive communion. Peterson actually said these words. He says, spread across a spectrum of highly liturgical Greek Orthodox Roman Catholic and Anglican congregations clustered at one end and storefront missions, independent Bible-believing gatherings, and charismatic congregations at the other end, and with the middle made up of established Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians and Congregationalists, we have done this. And we have been told by Jesus in this text alone to do this twice, to do this. And as I said a moment ago, is that this is one of the two things that the Christian church has done for its entire existence. We have always celebrated communion or the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table or other traditions called it the Eucharist, and we have always celebrated water baptism in one way, shape, form, or another. So we are told to do this twice. And the second thing that we notice in this text that Jesus also tells us twice to do this in remembrance of me. Now, here's what I want you to get. Remembering is not just a mental activity. Remembering is not just about having a memory. What Jesus is trying to get at here is that remembering here is an act of remembering. So, When we take communion, one of the things that I'm going to get you to do a little bit later in the service is I'm actually going to get you to get up out of your seat and have you come forward to receive the elements. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about why we do communion differently, why sometimes we do it this way or sometimes we have tables and we come and dip the bread in the juice and we take communion that way. The reason why we do that and the reason why I have us do that is because, re- because communion, remembrance of communion, is an act, not just a memory. We do something. And one of the things that we're going to do this morning is we're actually going to get up out of our seats and out of our chairs and we're going to come forward to receive communion to illustrate the fact that when we come to communion, we are to do this, not just sit and have it given to us, but we are to do. There's an action. It is the act of remembrance, just like on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. This coming Saturday, many people will do some things to remember the armistice of 1918. We wear poppies. Next Saturday, we will stop whatever we are doing wherever we are. And we will pause for a moment or for two moments. And we will reflect. And many of us will go down to, well, many people will go to the Cenotaph. But here we go to the arena. And that makes good sense because we live in Sudbury. But these are all acts that we do. Communion is not just a mental activity. It's not just a memory. It's an action. It is something that we are to do. 
The second thing that Jesus calls us to do is to look forward. And he says in verse, or Paul says in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. One of the things that we have established a long time ago and is established in the Bible is the hope that Jesus Christ is coming back, right? Right. So Steven Spielberg was discussing his new project. He wanted to create an action docudrama about famous classical musical composers. But he wanted to do so with some top stars. So he invited Sylvester Stallone, Steven Seagal, Bruce Willis, and Arnold Schwarzenegger to come and to audition and consider the parts. And so Spielberg was so intent on getting them to be a part of this because he really wanted some star-studded power in this docudrama. So he says to them, you can pick whatever composer you want, and you can be that person. And so Stallone says, well, you know, I really like Mozart, so I'll play him. And Bruce Willis says, you know, I really like Chopin, and, and I think it would be good for my reputation if people saw me playing the piano. And Steven Seagal says, you know, I really like Strauss and his waltzes, so I'll play Strauss. Spielberg looks around and he says, well, Arnold, what would you, who would you like to play in this docudrama? And Arnold, very deliberate, in a very slow voice, says, I'll be Bach. My wife did not respond that well. <laughs> but thanks for coming out. Jesus said, I'll be back. I'll be back. And one of the things that we are to do as a result of communion is proclaim. Proclaim that Jesus, proclaim Jesus' death until he returns. Now, two things, proclaiming, and remembering. And when we come to communion, what we need to keep in mind is that remembering and proclaiming are polar opposites. We remember and we proclaim, and these are the magnetic poles, if you will, of communion. And while they operate simultaneously, they also operate in polarity. Remembering continuously brings us back to the cross, to the crucifixion, to the suffering, and to the death of Jesus Christ. The crucified Christ, the crucifixion, is our spiritual north pole. To use a different reference, it is also our spiritual north star. And it is the thing by which we navigate everything that we do in our spiritual lives and in our physical lives. Remembering 
the death and resurrection, remembering the crucified Christ, is a continuous reorientation to the North Pole in the action of Jesus Christ in securing our salvation. Proclaiming is our spiritual South Pole. A continuous reorientation to the articulation that the crucified Christ is coming back again. Now, if we remember and proclaim, and remembering and proclaiming get isolated from each other, our salvation becomes dysfunctional. The computer, the, the communion compass begins to malfunction. If we remember and not proclaim, we're unbalanced. If we proclaim and not remember, we are unbalanced. And this is problematic. Because without those two held in tension, proclaiming and remembering, they become, our faith becomes unbalanced. Our faith becomes dysfunctional rather than functional. For example, remembering keeps us from being overactive. And it keeps us reflecting upon the fact of what God does for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And proclaiming, proclaiming keeps us from becoming too inactive of not doing anything and becoming preoccupied with ourselves. On the one hand, by remembering, we take time and space to reflect and contemplate what Jesus did on the cross. And on the other hand, by proclaiming, it protects us from being dominated by these feelings, and it actually works to keep us from being too self-absorbed. Remembering keeps us from thinking, or rather, remembering keeps us from thinking that before we do anything for God, that we must remember and receive what God has done in Christ for us. Remembering helps us get it through our heads that we are not in charge of salvation and we can add nothing to it. Proclaiming keeps us from becoming ghettoized. Proclaiming keeps us from getting stuck in our Christian enclaves or in our cliques or cliques, whichever pronunciation you want to use. Remembering keeps us in here. Proclaiming gets us out there. And whatever we do, it has to be rooted and grounded in the suffering and the death and the burial of Jesus Christ, and we remember this. And at the same time, our future hope has to be rooted and grounded in the return of Jesus Christ, that the risen Christ, that the crucified Christ is going to come back again. And so at communion, we remember and we proclaim. Without the balance of both, our faith is dysfunctional. And then finally, we look inward. Paul says, <clears throat> when we come to the table, he says, let a person 
examine themselves. You know, one of the things that communion does for us is that it puts Christ in his place and it puts us in our place. Jesus' place is dying on the cross and offering up his life for our salvation. Our place is to open our hands and our hearts and our heads and our lives and say yes to God's offer of love and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So communion keeps Jesus in his place as a savior of the world. And it also keeps us in our place as sinners in need of being saved. And nothing does that in the Christian church like communion. But at communion, we are called upon to examine ourselves, to reflect. Now, we sort of remember in a different sense. What we do at communion is we take a moment to look in the rearview mirror of our lives. Now, there needs to be a caution here because if we, it's like driving, if you only look in the rearview mirror, it's going to be catastrophic. We're only supposed to glance in the mirror. They tell us about every seven seconds. I have no idea who does that. But a ratio is of looking forward in our spiritual lives and looking back at our past is about the same ratio as your, the size of your rearview mirror to your windshield. The average rearview mirror is 96 times smaller than the windshield. And for obvious reasons. And so one of the things that we're supposed to do at communion is we are supposed to reflect. Just for a moment, glance in the rearview mirror and think about who we used to be. Now, the problem with that is this, that some of us haven't latched on yet to the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus Christ, and you can hardly forget. And hopefully today, hopefully today, you'll get to the place where you will open your heart and life to the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, and knowing that when you accept his love and forgiveness, he cleanses us. I always say to our baptismal students, um, candidates, when we're preparing for baptism, and I've told you this before, that in the Old Testament, the Old Testament always talks about our sins being covered. It's almost like God has got this huge cosmic rug, and every time somebody sins, he sort of sweeps it under the carpet, and the carpet is actually the blood of goats and the blood of bulls and the blood of pigeons and all of that, and so he sort of stockpile that, but it's covered. But when Jesus comes and dies on the cross, it never uses the word covered. It uses the word cleanse. And not only has the blood of Jesus cleansed my sins, but all the sins of the Old Testament saints that died before Jesus, died on the cross, all those sins are washed away. And the only person who is remembering your sins is Satan, who is our adversary. Oh, he will be quite willing to remind us of our past, and I should be honest, there are always a few people in our lives who like to do the same. 
those people ignore. Because you have not been covered by the blood of Jesus. You have been cleansed. You have been washed. And yes, yes, yes. Oh, not those little sins where, you know, you may have stolen something or you may have said something bad. I'm talking about that sin that you have hidden in the deepest recesses in the, in the, in the innermost closet of your heart. And you think, you know, God can forgive that sin, these little sins. But I'm not sure that he can forgive this number one regret in my life. And the Bible says that he cleanses us. Not just part, but everything. That sin, that's in the most remote, hidden closet of your heart. God wants to cleanse. He wants to forgive. Now, you're looking at me like deer in the headlights. Because some of you find this too hard to believe. Well, if you don't trust me, read the Bible. Because it's all there. But as we look inward, there's two things we need to do. The first thing is we need to examine ourselves. We need to take inventory, personal inventory of ourselves. Now, nobody else can do that for us. This is a very personal, very individual reality. I know sometimes people who say they love us most would like to do that for us, but nobody can do that for us. Not our spouses, not our best friends, not our girlfriends, not our boyfriends not our parents, not our siblings, only you and I, I can only take inventory of myself. And only you can take inventory of yourself. The second thing that we're supposed to examine is this, not just our relationship with ourself, but we are supposed to examine our relationships with each other. With our spouses, with our children, with our parents, with our siblings, with our neighbors. And with each other. And Jesus makes it very clear. Jesus says that if you come to the altar, if you come to the table and you've got something in your heart against your brother and sister, leave it here. And then go and fix it. And then come back. Again, only you and only I can take personal inventory of our relationships. Me of mine and you of yours. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. And with this I conclude... In the Old Testament, they brought bulls and lambs and goats and pigeons and doves. In the Old Testament, they built elaborate altars and places of worship. And they brought these things to God. So the question is, what do we bring to God? What are we supposed to bring to God? And the answer comes back, the only thing that we have, really, is ourselves. That's what Paul gets at in Romans. He says, our bodies, offer our bodies as living sacrifices. 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. And these offerings of our bodies are the best that we can do. And it's all that we can do. It's not perfect, but it's the best. And we don't give it to show that we, how good we are. And we certainly don't give it to gain approval because we need to understand and be reminded that everything that you and I have and are is a gift from God. And we don't offer our service, we don't offer our bodies as living sacrifices for any other reason than this. It's not to gain anything, it's not to get anything. There's only one reason why we do all that we do, and it's this. There are three reasons, actually. First of all, as an act of thanksgiving. Secondly, as an act of praise and worship. And the third one is an act of obedience. That's the only reason. I'm not earning anything by being a pastor. You're not earning anything by working for the kingdom of God. All we're doing is we are offering what we have and who we are to God as thanksgiving, as obedience, and as the backs of worship. That's it. But we offer our bodies the best that we have, all that we have, and we place them at the altar. And when we come and we give ourselves and we offer our, our bodies as living sacrifices, what we're really saying is, we're saying to God, let's see what you can do with it. Let's see if God can do something better with our lives, with our bodies than we have been able to do. You see, we all know, we all know that we are unfinished, we are imperfect, we are neurotic, stumbling, singing out of tune most of the time, and we are forgetful. And when we come to God, all I have to offer him is this. Now, you mightn't think it's much, but this is all I got. Not my kids, not the couple of bucks I got in the bank, not the vehicle I drive. This is what I give to God. This is all I got. This is the only thing I'm taking with me when I die. And that, not until the resurrection. And so what we do is we give our best to God. And when we do that, we examine ourselves. And we examine our relationships with each other. And we certainly don't come to the table with broken relationships. And even if we do, we don't leave with broken relationships. Communion is supposed to be the place of reconciliation. I'm going to invite Carla and the team to come and get in place for communion. I'm going to invite the ushers to come. And I want to finish with this. Sacrifice is at the center of communion. Sacrifice is God's way of dealing with everything that is wrong in history, in the world, and in me, and in you. Sacrifice is God's way of dealing with problems. Now, we've got other ways... 
We think that we can use force, that we just need to get rid of it if we work hard enough. Or education, teach people to do right and wrong. Hopefully they'll do right. Or by entertainment, we just distract people so they don't have the focus on it. Or economic improvement. We offer people personal incentives. But God's choice is sacrifice. Here's the point. Communion costs God something. And it should cost us something as well. There is a price to pay to follow Jesus. And there is a price to pay to follow him to the table. But there's also a price to pay to follow him away from the table. It costs us something. And so I want us this morning to reflect around that. 